Good afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the West Stage here at the Pioneer Women's Memorial Gardens here on the floodplains of the Torrens River in beautiful Adelaide. We meet, of course, on Ghana Yata, the traditional lands of the Ghana people. This site has been a long, uh, has a long and proud history as a site of ritual, of storytelling, and of bearing witness to the truth, which in our modest way we hope to contribute to. Uh, my name's Tom Wright. I, it's my joy and privilege to host this session today as we discuss the extraordinary legacy and wonderful uh, work of Donald Horn, uh, with a particular uh, acknowledgement of the what has come to be known as the Donald Horn Trilogy, his remarkable memoir, published in three parts over the best part of 20 years. Joining me on stage, uh, for reasons that I'm sure will be very clear to you, people who are very qualified to speak about Don the legacy and life of Donald Horn. Sitting next to me, Professor Julia Horn, teacher, curator, professor of history and university historian at the University of Sydney. She publishes widely on Australian cultural and educational history. Her next book, Australian Universities, which she's co-edited with Matthew Thomas, seeks to improve the public conversation about our public universities and will be well, coming out shortly, I'd imagine. At the end of the year. At the end of the year. Thank you for being here, Professor Horn. Uh, sitting next to Professor Horn, Nick Horn. Nick's a Sydney taxi driver. Oh, and the editor of Donald Horn Selected Writings as well. <laughs> Thank you for coming over, Nick. Um, it's been five years since you've brought that book out. I was reading the introduction to it rapidly before we came on. Thanks for making the effort to come over here. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Lovely. And sitting next to Nick Horn, Dr Karen Goldsworthy. Adelaide writer and critic. She's former lecturer in literature, former editor of the Australian Book Review, winner of the 2013 Pascal Prize for Australian Critic of the Year, and perhaps more pertinently, the 2017 recipient of the Horn Prize. She wrote the book on Adelaide as part of the New South Publishing City series, which was over in the book tent as well. Give that a quick little plug. Thank you for being here, Karen, <laughs> as well. Um, let's, turn to, let's turn to Donald Horn. I might just actually, for, I won't make the assumption that everybody here today is intimately familiar with the life and work of Donald Horn. So if you'll indulge me, I might just provide the thumbnail sketch of his biography. Born in 1921, journalist, social critic, academic, memoirist, if anyone defined or even redefined the idea of a public intellectual in Australia, it was Donald Horn. He grew up in Muswellbrook. He had a degree which was interrupted by the Second World War, trained in Canberra to be a diplomat, but was back in Sydney by the end of the war in 1945. Worked for the Packer Media, uh, was the editor of the Bulletin and two separate stints. For a long period, the Telegraph as well. In 1973, he moved sideways back into academia at the University of New South Wales as a research fellow, and then later was the Chancellor of the University of Canberra in the 90s. He was ubiquitous, I'm sure we can all remember, on writing, arts, on citizenship. Almost every committee had Donald on him, providing his wisdom at a certain point. And of course, he was the chair of the Australia Council in many ways back when it had uh, the chance to actually provide some leadership it struggles with now, 1985 to 1990. Donald died after a long illness of pulmonary fibrosis in September 2005. His interests in liberal democracy, in multiculturalism, in tolerance, in republicanism, in indigenous recognition were prophetic, were timely and provided genuine moral and intellectual leadership at a time when the country most needed it. In some ways he was a man ahead of his time, in some ways what he created is the world we live in at the moment. His most famous book is, of course, The Lucky Country, which he wrote in 1964, which is 
uh, transcended books and has become something of a cultural phenomenon, both quoted and misquoted ever since. He also wrote Australian People, Biography of a Nation, 1972, or Ideas for a Nation in 1989, just to mention a couple. But it was all, it's as a memoirist that he also established his reputation. His extraordinary 1976, 1967 book, The Education of Young Donald, is genuinely one of the classics of Australian memory, memoir, autobiography, and capturing the spirit of a generation. He later completed the trilogy with Confessions of a New Boy in 1986, and two years later, Portrait of an Optimist. There was other autobiographical work. He had a genius for it, Into the Open, which was published uh, in 2000, which reflected his later years, and then, as if that wasn't enough, he was able to posthumously continue the conversation between himself and the world, thanks to the work of his late wife, Mufanwi, Dying, a memoir, a remarkable book which came out in 2007. Defender of autodidacts, recalcitrant, rebel, social conservative and radical, at the same time, Donald Horne, there was no one like him. And it's a pleasure to have two members of his family, of course, Nick and uh, Julia. Julia. Not Professor. Was, thank you. Uh, Nick and Julia. I was going to call you Fiona and then I realised why. <laughs> Nick and Julia, thank you for being here because, of course, you are Donald's children. Thank you for joining us on stage. Um, I might just start with you, Nick, if that's all right. You write very movingly when you edited the collected writings recently, and again, there are copies of that in the book tent. Tell us a bit about what it was like to re-establish a relationship with his, your father through the writings after having said goodbye to him a decade earlier. What a great question. <laughs> I mean, we haven't even talked about it and, and you come up with that. Yeah, it, it was, um, it, it was a, a way of, of re-establishing um, a connection with Donald. I mean, writers can be a bit tricky. I mean, I love Donald, don't get me wrong, at all. Uh, don't get me, I loved him, so... Um, but, but, you know, um, writers can be a little bit tricky sometimes and to have that legacy, the books, um, you know, the work... Uh, that you can you can reconnect with and and sort of get into under under his skin by by um you know by sort of presenting his work in that way and in doing that book I actually typed out all the um all the excerpts and that's also of course another another great way to kind of you know sort of um, feel feel um, feel the man um, yeah. And, uh, I've had I've had a lot of mem a lot of um, lot of dreams since he's died, and, and they're all happy. Um, and I think it's partly um, because of, of this posthumous connection um, of having sort of worked on his on his work like that. Yeah. Julia, what was it like growing up as, as the daughter of a public intellectual? What were you aware of it at the time, or is this something that you've come to appreciate later? I think it's something that I came to appreciate later, not when I was yeah, a baby. But um, I think, you know, the way I would describe it is that, you know, I think we both grew up essentially in a house that was a cottage industry. And that included our mother as much as our father. It included, you know, it was, there was no sense, industrial revolution sense of um, a separation between home and productivity, it all happened there. There might be excursions to, you know, the industry, to an industrial workplace like the university or to the office uh, when he was the editor of the bulletin. But overall, the sort of work that um, he did was very much a family enterprise that from the beginning included our mother 
and then as we grew up actually came to include us. You know, often if we were 12 and in the back of a car going on a family trip, in fact, to Adelaide, when I was 12, that might be reluctant participation, <laughs> but it was, um, you know, we were there, I guess, to partake experience and then contribute when we wanted to, to the sort of productivity, the books, the ideas, and, we, you know, we mustn't forget also the great contributions to public conversation that were so important um, from the 60s, particularly from the late 70s onwards. You get a sense of the man from the writing. The, the trilogy is a remarkable portrait of someone, and it's strange because you enter almost prejudicially thinking that you're going to get sort of the classic public intellectual as extrovert, as deeply socially connected person, as a people person, all that sort of thing. And actually the portrait that you, to my surprise, started to come through was of someone who um, saw himself as a loner in a way, or at least certainly had a lonely childhood before his sister joined him, and um, was simultaneously deeply connected, as I said, there must have been times there where it was just a committee meeting every night. And yet, at the same time, there's a, this autodidact, this man on his own journey, this, he's very proud of his self-reliance and so on. What, was that a part of what it was like, that early childhood? Uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think he was... Um, he, he, of course, came from a very gregarious family, so, so there was always people around. But yes, being an only child until um, Janet was born um, 15 years later um, uh, was an issue. Um, he was, he was um, an outsider. I mean, it's funny, you know, we think of, of Donald Horne as, as being um, sort of quite celebrated um, in, in, amongst good small circles. We think of him in that way. Uh, um, but he was, he was always saw himself as something of, a, of, a, of an outsider, sort of storming, yeah. storming um, you know, the, the, um, uh, the, the areas, you know, sort of trying to get the ideas um, in there. So. So, um, yeah, he was... I mean, all writers have, 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 I suppose, a necessity to get a bit of exile, have a bit of exile. So, um, so that, was, that was part of him. But, but um, geez, you wouldn't know it. I mean, he, he was able to sort of command, um, the, you know, uh, the floor um, at, at, at the lunch table and, and, and be very entertaining. Um, so he, also, he had a capacity for, 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 for good sort of social interaction, yeah. Karen, it's not an exaggeration to suggest that Donald Horn created modern Australia. To a certain extent, the way we describe ourselves, the way we talk about our writing, about our literature, images of uh, identity, but particularly in terms of things such as reconciliation with Indigenous people, an acknowledgement that the egalitarian tradition needed to be defended and um, was perhaps being misappropriated. Uh, what impact did he have in the world of Australian letters? What, I'm sorry, I missed the word. What in the world of Australian letters, what impact did oh, he have? well, um, he was, as I think you've said, the editor of a number of journals that either became or were, while he was editing them, extremely influential. He took over something like the Bulletin that had been influential since 1890-whatever and radicalised it. He removed... the Probably the single most important thing he did in the context of your question was to remove the Bulletin slogan, um, Australia for the White Man. He so said, we're not having this taken away. Um, and it's extraordinary that it was still there in... Well, and this wasn't in the 1930s, this was no, in the 1960s. It was, it the was 1960s. still calling itself Australia for the White Man. Yeah. yeah. Um, he edited Quadrant at a time when Quadrant was a serious intellectual journal, conservative-ish, but, you know, people like Robert Mann were editors of Quadrant, but, you know, after Donald. So it, it was... He, he just shaped not just one but several really important 
journals, for, just for a start, just for a start. He wrote The Lucky Country, which, until people started misappropriating the term and misunderstanding it, um, was, a, was, a, it was one of several books in the 1960s. I'm thinking, is it, is it Robin Boyd? The yes. ugly, the ugly, yes. the one about Australian the Australian ugliness. Yeah. yeah, it was one of a few of those that um, really seriously addressed what was the matter with Australian society. Well, the land of the long like weekend that. and so on. But Donald yeah. set the template, didn't he, in yeah. a way, for that conversation? Yeah. Um, remarkable uh, capacity to to cut through and uh, create the idea that actually thinking about Australia was a worthy endeavour. He also pretty much invented the category of the public intellectual in Australia. We didn't really, you know, we had some terrific writers, especially the women in the 1930s, but the war derailed the movements that were just starting up in the 30s and, and he sort of picked them up and revived them after, the, after he came back from England. Um, Julia, when you, um, when you come to talk about Donald Horne, you find yourself caught up in this uh, debate about the lucky country. And he spent 40 years, the last 40 years of his life trying to correct the record, so to speak. So we should spend at least a few minutes now making it quite clear that this term, and all, this term the lucky country, which has become beloved of marketers and it's used in uh, ads and tourism promotions and so on, was obviously meant ironically. And the, that, but the, when it first came out, everybody understood that. Why did it drift? Well, it's a wonderful title, isn't it? You know, the lucky country. Who doesn't want to grow up and live in a lucky country? But, of course, what the title did was to separate it from... It was actually the chapter, you know, the title of the last chapter. And what it did was to separate that evocative phrase, you know, that phrase you just want to embrace, from the rest of the sentence, which was to explain it was a lucky country run by second-rate leaders, mostly second-rate leaders um, who like, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but who like to, who like the notion of luck. And of course, by the 60s, that meant living um, on the mineral boom, which of course we're still living on. So, um, so I think there's that, you know, just the phrase and people not necessarily, um, understanding that. I mean, what I would say, so as Tom explained, I'm a historian, and what I would say about the lucky country and when it came out in 1964 is that that's about 20 years after World War II. And World War II, at the end of World War II, we had Chifley and then, of course, sorry, Curtin and then, of course, Chifley. And there was this real sense of a new beginning in Australia. We were no longer necessarily going to be, you know, the outer part of the empire. We had discovered um, the United States. We were very slowly beginning to um, discover our northern neighbours in, you know, that place called Asia. And there were, you know, the government wanted actually to establish a bold experiment that would put ideas out into Australia and make it modern. 20 years on, it was floundering. It wasn't that at all. So that the book in some ways captures that, that breach between the old Australia that was supposed to be brushed out by um, the you know, post-war reconstruction era and the failure of um, leadership in many ways to actually really make that successful. So... Um, that might not quite answer your question, no. but at least I've said what I wanted it, to say. It does, it does better than answer it because it takes it further. It's, uh, Karen, let, let's just 
dwell a little bit further on the lucky country because there's so much in it when you do go back and look at it, even as a historical document, it's mm. still a wonderful book because so many of the things we still find ourselves wrestling with are very present in it. It's the first time you can feel a sense of it's a matter of national moral urgency that we have Indigenous reconciliation starts to come through as a means of stop riding our luck, start working hard, or the white Australia policy is actually interrogated and spoken about as opposed to swept under the carpet. Yeah. But best of all is that phrase, I remember it from university, our business is derivative, non-innovative, it's just plain mediocre. Yeah. And this, and what do you know, we're still a, a nation where we, we fail to make and invent things, we just prefer to process iron ore, send it off and ship it back as steel, don't we? We've, it feels like we've barely moved on. I, it's, uh, it's hard to know how these things happen when someone lays it out for you so clearly in 1963, four? Four. four. Um, when someone lays it out and there it is, you know, this is what's happened, this is what we need to do, this is why we were like this. Um, and people just don't read it. You know, so we, or pe the people who do read it are not the people who want to be politicians. I think that's part of the problem. You know, and then you, so you get a cohort of politicians that just gets bigger and bigger and clumpier and clumpier, all, all reproducing itself like some rogue cell without actually looking at the documents that have tried to transform the population. We should um, get on to the trilogy, the memoir, because it is the, the primary subject of today's um, session, the education of young Donald, this wonderful new, <laughs> new form, education of young Donald with Donald's name and you can see young Donald striding on the cover, but just a little bit more context before we do, because this feels like it is very pertinent to today. We're, Australia feels very polarised at the moment. Everybody is um, herded into tribes. We're either left wing or right wing, where there's very little middle ground. But Donald was one of those people who you could never categorise. Mm. I think is that fair to assert that he, he? There were moments where he was a social conservative, almost like an old Whig, and then there were moments where his radicalism was almost too radical for the Australia that he inhabited. Does he provide a model for a way in which we could hopefully try and get an intellectual debate which can encompass slightly more yeah. conciliation? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think um, his, his, his sort of, if you want, core belief was liberal humanism. Um, and obviously, I mean, people are going to be left-wing and right-wing and they're going to sort of make their own definitions and some of them will be good and some, will, some of them won't be good. But, um, you know, sort of, if you've, got, if you've got some sort of sense that you know, freedom, freedom is good and freedom to do what you want um, within a certain uh, framework is great. And, and humanism, um, the idea that we're in, in some respects all in this together, um, you know, sort of vital stuff. But, he, but he's a very sort of, he's, he's, he's always been aware of the complexity of existence. So left-right is a very, very simplistic and sometimes, um, you know, sort of harmful um, way, of, way of looking at things. For him, pluralism, you know, was, was a good way of, of both intellectually but also sort of socially. You know, the place is full of lots of different um, sort of categories. You've got different cultures, um, different classes, different psychological profiles. Um, and, and, you know, this is just the way, the way, this is the cards that we've been dealt as human beings. And, of course, uh, with a plural society, a pluralist society with lots of different um, social forces going on, you need tolerance. This is another key platform, key Donald Horn platform. And it's not, it's, tolerance isn't just sort of other people sort of getting, getting with a program, you know, it's, it's not just that. It's also, um, you know, sort of um, a question of, 
of, of, of us, if you want, of, of, of people who, who are sort of go to Writers Week, um, are educated, are sensible, but also being aware that, you know, there are other people coming from other sort of different walks of life and one can disagree with them um, strongly on certain issues, but one has to acknowledge that, you know, peaceful coexistence is, 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 the, only way, um, is the only way that we can live together. Well, his wonderful phrase was that we should abominate but necessarily tolerate. You, it's, it's okay to find someone's opinion reprehensible, but uh, we, we, the definition of liberal humanism in Horn's world was the government get to decide everything and you don't expect everyone to be the same as you. Yeah, yeah. As he saw it as a fairly simple set of principles, didn't he? Let's pick up from that point of tolerance because in some ways the education of young Donald starts from that viewpoint. The vision of Australia that he paints as growing up in, in Muswellbrook there was a deeply secular, no, deeply sectarian one, I should say. Uh, Protestant in, in his case, growing up, but uh, acutely aware of his Roman Catholic teacher and Roman Catholic sort of, uh, uh, shopkeepers and so on, and yet it feels like a very divided tribal world. Um, Julia, to what extent is this actually a, 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 a portrait that you sort of respond to? Well, can I read something? <laughs> so, in this book, um, the first book is a set, you know, begins with his growing up in Musselbrook, one of the first chapters. And he describes, um, look, he had a real sense of place, I must say, and he was so good at describing things. But to me, this paragraph en encapsulates exactly what you're saying. What year so are we talking about, roughly? We're here? talking, um, we're spanning the period between 1930. Six and 19, uh, sorry, 1930, sorry, what am I talking about? We're the early 30s, yes. late 20s, early 30s. I'm getting confused with a research project I'm doing anyway. It happens like that. So I begin. Here's a boy here between six and 12. If you walk to the top of our hill, this is in Musselbrook in the Upper Hunter in New South Wales, a small country town, if you walk to the top of our hill, you found the doctor's houses. Then you rushed down the other side of the hill to the cemetery. There was an even steeper fall in another part of town. I once tumbled down it, head over heels from a stately home down to the gasworks. In the river flats between the creek and the railway track, there was a sleepy part. Old houses with nothing behind them but paddocks of maize, separated by empty roads wide enough to take six lanes of traffic, shimmering with heat and in summer drumming with insect noises. The blacksmith, who was also the undertaker and for a while the mayor, had his shed alongside the Catholic church. The railway shunting yards were just across the creek from the golf links. When you walked down the main street past Eaton's Hotel and turned the corner, you found yourself right out of town back in the country. It's fantastic. It just encapsulates that every, you know, that a country town was filled with class, religious, um, and various other differences, including town and country. And you knew your place, didn't you? There was a th this is a world, Karen, that where everyone knew their place. And he's very conscious, even as a, his picture of himself as a child is still aware that there are rich people. And he talks about mm. the whites, who are Patrick White's mob. You know, that, those kind of landed gentry families that are there. And then there are uh, then there are also aware of this a shadow presence as well. Uh, is this a bit of invention of a, a kind of sophistication in a child, or is this actually the way children worked? 
the, the way the book's written, um, it's, it's very consciously done um, as a sort of faux-naïf looking back on oneself as a child. So what he's doing is telling you the things he saw in the, in the, the words in which he saw them as a child. You know, so you're not getting any analysis, you're just getting the picture. You know, once he'd, I think we've talked about this a little bit, once he'd actually, um, Nick, you said sort of fixed on a, a technique for, for talking about his early childhood. Um, that was the way he did it. So it was kind of magical, but I think he's, he's drawn that picture of Musselbrook so that we can infer, you know, the, the, the social analysis. I was, I loved that. I didn't actually, my, Musselbrook was a town that figured very largely in my mother's personal mythology. So never having been there myself, I was very conscious of it as a place. And the way, the way Donald describes it, it's, you know, you've got to, if you're a town, you've got to be of a certain bigness before you can be a microcosm. You know, the little town I came from was too small to be a microcosm, but Musselbrook sounds exactly the right size. So you can make generalisations like, well, if you're only a school teacher, you weren't allowed to go to these dances, you were only allowed to go to those dances. You know, and he, he does that. He sort of says, if you were in this stratum of, of um, society, you went to these social occasions, but if you were in that other one, you know, you went to those. It was interesting because around the time he says that about the White family, I found a lovely photo, just sort of madly Googling, of um, Donald and Patrick White in 1976 on the first anniversary of the dismissal, of the Whitlam dismissal, singing, obviously very enthusiastically, singing the national anthem at some, at some um, event that was obviously meant to do whatever the opposite of celebrate um, the dismissal was. Which national anthem? Oh, I think it was probably... It wasn't that one. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't imagine Patrick well, White singing anything with the Zeus. Well, there you go. I, it must have been the, the one that's the national anthem now, actually, because I'm not sure it was yet back then. It was Advance Australia It was Advance Australia Fair, yeah. 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 It's, um, Musselbrook is more, is a microcosm, as you say, Karen, but it's also a place where things are made. I mean, it's not by coincidence that um, this world that you've just read from Julia is not just a world which is sectarian as well as stratified. So the Catholics have their ball and the Anglicans have their golf ball or whatever it was. I can't remember what the order is, but the golf ball seems to be the one that's most... But the Protestants get to go that. So it's, it's sectarian across the horizontally. It's yeah. stratified yeah. vertically. But it's also a place where everything's made. People make their own butter. People make their own shoes. The things are repaired in town. And there are factories. And coal is dragged from the ground. It's a resolute, practical Australia that works with its hands. Um, and then you have this counterpoint of a young mind that's increasingly learning how to think about it. But this is not an Australia we recognise anymore. We don't make things anymore. And creativity means something different. And over the course of the education of young Donald, that becomes a theme. Is there something you'd like to read from it as well? Yeah. Do you um, have anything in there, Nick, that you'd like bit, to share with us? Or would you, a bit do you want to contextualise it? A, a bit later in the story. Mm -hmm. um, so he's... he's um, He's gone through university, he didn't get his degree, and he's, he's fought in the war, and, and now he's, he's um, thinking about journalism as a career. And he, he meets the legendary Brian Penton. I found Penton in an office somewhat larger than that in which he had hired me as a university correspondent four years before. Then he had seemed like a wild animal in a cage. Now he was a wild animal with room to strike Cyril Pearl had been wearily jovial with a protective reserve so that he invited friendship but then repelled it. Penton was wearily angry, but beneath the languid surface of his anger there seemed to lie limitless reserves of blazing hatred. <laughs> when I was announced, he looked up with a quick, unsympathetic glance 
and bent his head down over his writing, leaving me to find my way unobserved across the hostile territory of his blue carpet to a seat beside his desk, and then wonder if, instead of sitting so close to him, I should have chosen one of the chairs at the far end of the room. He dipped his pen vehemently into the ink well, scratched the paper, looked with loathing at what he had written, and then, with contempt, crossed it out. I was snatched up into a conversation, the beginning of which I could not understand, but when we took breath and I said I wanted to be a feature writer, his face went even angrier and more red. Journalism is a profession, Mr Horn. It's a craft. You have to learn it. You've got to serve your apprenticeship. Just because you've got a university degree, don't think you can walk in off the street and become a journalist. There was much more of this. The need for accuracy and precision, the democratic and educational functions of the press, the need for clarity and style. But during a lull in the anger, I discovered I was being hired. Penton presented it as a victory. All he would offer was six pounds, five shillings a week to do casual reporting three days a week. Take it or leave it. This arrangement would carry on for a couple of months. Then they would or would not put me on the staff on a basis to be determined by actual hard results. Penton had put me in my place. I had concealed the fact that I was a diplomatic cadet and that after a couple of months, I would be back in Canberra. Six pounds, five shillings a week. My income had more than doubled. Penton waved me off with a kind of chiding, jovial anger. Remember, he said, your returned soldier's badge is worth more to you than your university degree. What an anecdote this would make for my wound friend who was waiting for me in Usher's Lounge. Penton punished me by doubling my income and then insulted me by saying my returned soldier's badge was worth more than my university degree when I didn't have either a returned soldier's badge or a university degree. <laughs> I would order expensive drinks. I thought we could afford them now. <laughs> Wonderful. There, there are so many strands in there, aren't there? The, the idea of um, what it is to be liberated and what it is to be um, colonised, as it were. But Penton's also painted with just a few thumbnail sketches and you get a sense of the kind of human being that used to um, be in charge of our news organs that no longer is. That Straight away hearing that, you're reminded that Donald's about to enter in some ways the golden age of Australian journalism and Australian newspaper writing and it feels all the more poignant in the 21st century as we watch the disintegration of our media to sort of realise the kind of minds that were running uh, even our minor magazines and newspapers in those days, let alone our major organs. You were nodding enthusiastically there, Karen. What's your observation about it? Uh, I, I, um, my eyes were open to what you've just been saying. In 1981, my first year of teaching at Melbourne University, I was basically um, doing work for an old journo called Hume Dow, who was being pretty much pushed out and who had established a, a subject for um, cadet journalists to learn about writing. And this in itself was seen as an intrusion into university life, as creative writing also was, you know, ten, for the few years down the track. But Hume Dow was old school. And Hume Dow was the man who taught me how to proofread properly. He was the man who taught me what a colon was for and what a semicolon was for and what the difference was. He was the man who taught me which books to read if I wanted to know this stuff. 
So I was, you know, at one remove, and he was also a man who had worked with um, George Johnston and Charmian Clift, who get a number of, of mentions, because Donald, of course, also knew them. So I, that was my direct connection to the kind of world that Donald had, had come from. Um, and I learned a lot from him, and I was grateful, really. Uh, Julia, how do you read it now? I'm talking specifically about the education young Donald as a historical document as opposed to the book of your father. What do you see it as saying about um, the journey that Australia's been on? Because it's the book itself it was, starts in the early 60s, the actual act of writing it is not completed. The final pages there are products of the Hawke era. So it's sort of, it's, it starts in the Menzies era and it ends almost in the Keating government in terms of the length of writing. So it's written over the course of a large degree of social change. Mm. But do you, when you look back at it now, do you find new things in it? So, um, I mean, first of all, yeah, it is a sort of family document, I guess, but in fact, I have read it from cover to cover three times in my life. And um, the last time I read it, I thought, this is actually more than a family document. This is really a book of humanity. And just you know, told very honestly, candidly, well, you know, with such great can candor, in fact. Um, and how did he achieve that? So I guess my answer to that question is that I'm not sure whether um, the writing of it was a product of his, of you know, the sort of work that he was doing in the, um, particularly in the 80s and 90s, when the last two parts of the trilogy were written. But that it's, you know, to me as a historian, how did he achieve that? You know, how did he? Normally, if you read autobiography, it tends to be um, from memory, and there's that sense in which you're talking about the past, whereas this is about almost about talking about the present in some ways. You know, he is able to subsume himself. And it came, you know, I happened to be at some lecture he was giving at the State Library about writing the book, and he explained there that he relied tremendously on um, interviews with his mother, with his grandmother, um, on, you know, he would go and, just what a historian does, go and read the Musselbrook Chronicle, the Daily Telegraph, mm -hmm. So he was actually, and also reread all the correspondence that he got. So in fact, he was placing himself in a way that a biographer does through there, but not being either a biographer or necessarily in this, a memoirist. Whereas, you know, perhaps in the, particularly the last um, volume of the five autobiographies and memoirs, he is more reflective in that memoirist style. What do you take, Nick? by the title, the emphasis on education. What, do, what, what, what sort of signal are we getting there? That the, from the very word go, the emphasis here is on education. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what does education mean? I mean, for Donald, it was quite clear um, what it meant early on, and, and his early years are, are very um, important. I mean, it, probably everyone's early years are, are important, and, and, and so the same is true for Donald. His, his father... Um, had grown up in a mining community um, and he'd become a, I think they call it a pupil teacher. So you're, you're um, learning how to be a teacher and you're teaching at the same time. So, so there was this sense that education was growth. Um, so that, 
and also you've got to look at it sort of within the context of, of the Enlightenment. I mean, Australia was founded by people, was 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 settled by and, and you know by people with um, in, in sort of 1788 in the white in the white part of, of Australia's history, by people who were um, of the Enlightenment or mm. in the in the British sense perhaps of the the Age of Improvement. So this was this was you know this was sort of in his bones and and he saw himself as a um, as part of the, the overall progress of things. Things were going to get better. Um, he'd pass exams, you know, he'd, he'd read books and, and things were going to get better. And then um, it kind of goes bung a bit. He goes to university um, and things are very complex, um, you know. Um, and um, and he, 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 the, the career that he'd organised for himself, it didn't work out that way. But then it becomes a life's education, doesn't it? And then, and then we, we, we think of, of, of education not just being sort of academic, but um, the whole experience. I mean, his work as a journalist is crucial to understanding. I mean, he always had great observational skills, but actually going out there and having to um, record what was going on in front of him, whatever it was, and putting it down, um, you know, within the timeline, really, really, I think, fine-tuned his, his writing. And... And he's, for mine, he's, he's such a great describer. He's, he's, he's able to describe things, whether it be sort of um, a, a, you know, character sketches or, or country towns or whatever. He's really able to evoke yeah. um, uh -huh, the sense of the place or the person. Um, and, and, yeah, I mean, obviously the journalism um, uh, it contributed to that. He became a national storyteller, but you have to educate yourself in that art, don't you? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. it's, again, an Indigenous tradition, is that you earn the right to be an elder by learning how to tell a story. But yeah. But, um, it requires wisdom. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Noel Pearson um, referred to him as, as an elder of the nation, um, and he had a great respect for Noel, and, uh, and apparently it was returned. Yeah. Um, I see you've got a sec... Uh, my beady eyes see you have a second bookmark in there, Julie. Have you got something else you'd <laughs> like to share with us? Because I loved hearing from... And it does gives a sense of the man better than almost anything we can say, obviously. Well, this actually... It relates, in fact, to what Nick was just saying. So his... Um, and your question about education. So he arrives at the University of Sydney in the late 1930s. 1938? Is that no. 1939. So just, you know, war is going to begin at some point and oh sorry I've just lost um, oh. I've just lost it um, here we go so he this you have to do, just you have to understand that he'd had quite a troubled um, schooling career so while he was incredibly smart and won all the prizes in his, um, you know, from what we would now call year nine to year 12, not that that existed at all in those days, uh, a lot was going on in his life and he changed high schools three times mm -hmm. um, as they moved around um, New South Wales, which was the lot of uh, public school government teachers in those days. So it's, he always thought he'd go to university and he gets a teacher's scholarship, which enables him to actually go there. He wouldn't have really been able to afford it otherwise. And here he is describing um, his philosophy professor, John Anderson. Those of you from Sydney will know who he is, on the first day of university. So on the day I first arrived at the university, I saw Anderson walking along the cloisters in the quad. Someone pointed him out as the Scottish radical who was the university's main rebel a renowned atheist, not long ago a communist, censured in the New South Wales Parliament 
and by the University Senate. Anderson seemed the most important person of the university. When he walked by, my skin might stiffen and my hair prickle at the roots. He was in his 40s, very tall, stooped, gangling, striding loosely past in a brown suit and a green hat with an upturned brim, usually sombre, with his pipe jutting out from between his teeth. He seemed an embodiment of what was grave and constant in human suffering. But sometimes he would wave an arm at a student loosely as if it were a puppet's and smile, strong teeth bursting out beneath his full black moustache. His huge, sad brown eyes seemed to sag right into his face, pulling the cheeks down with them, lost in wisdom. Sometimes he seemed very tired, both tough and fragile, bearing a great load, but still walking briskly. Then he would laugh or wave his arm. I was gripped by the need to know him. And Anderson, of course, is a remarkable figure and so many social forces that formed the Australia we live in now, such as the Sydney push and so many of the ways, at least coming out of Sydney, so much of the intellectual tradition came out of that one figure strolling through the quad. But um, it, it's fair to say that Donald never was a joiner of those sort of crowds. He wasn't a member of the push, was he? No. He's not a libertarian. No, the push, push came after, yeah. after he was... Um, he got into the quadrant crowd... Um, so, you said before that he was socially conservative. He was never really socially conservative, and he was never really... Um, he called himself liberal conservative, um, but he, he never felt conservative, he said, he said later. Um, you know, he, he, had, he had friends um, who, who, were, who got into the, into the quadrant, so, quadrant crowd, and obviously Macaulay was important. Um, you know, so, so there was... There was, in some respects, he was of the right, but he was never, he was never, because he started off as being of the left and, and um, he saw himself as, you know, being of the left. And then, you know, uh, sort of uh, once, once Goff came, then he, I th you could, you could, if you, if you don't put him in the left, you'd, you'd say he's a fellow traveller. And that, that's the point about Andersonian sort of thought, isn't it? It's like these, are, these things don't apply. Yeah, Anderson's a smart guy and often misunderstood, um, but, but, but that's partly his own fault as well. He was, he was very uncompromising, which was both a strength and a weakness. Yeah. Karen, you were going to make an observation there. I, I, was, I was hoping, to, I, I will, um, your, your question about education is still reverberating. I, the, one, what this is, is an intellectual autobiography, mm -hmm. you know, and you don't get them very much. You don't get the story of how someone's mind was formed. You get sporting autobiographies, you get spiritual autobiographies, you get family autobiographies, but this is someone who, you know, whose whole life was mainly about his mind, how it was formed, how it worked, what it believed, and I mean, I met, Don, I met Donald when he was about the same age I am now, and he was still really curious about everything. He wanted to know how things worked, and he worked. He he figured out how things worked by doing them, um, and and you know, arts bureaucrat, editor, whatever, you know. But but for me, the focus in this book, the whole trilogy, keep, just keeps coming back all the time. And Anderson's an early example of this. Um, to what do I think? How do I know? How did I work out how to work this out? Um, and he just, keeps, he just kept doing that all his life, as far as I can yes. see. I think there's a nice example. Um, so, you know, 
He's university education. He doesn't get a degree, but that's because he's conscripted. Um, he has, you know, he's called up to join in the Chocos forces in World War II. So, in, in a sense, his university education, I guess, you know, might be seen as a failure, and he writes about his anger and all the rest at that time. But here I can come in as university historian, or as a historian of university life. And the University of Sydney, you know, he arrived just at the time where there'd been this really um, big expansion in the 20s and 30s in student life. So there were yeah. part, you know, this was partly an Anderson um, encouragement. So there was the Free Thought Society, which he joins. There was the Labor Club, which he doesn't join, but he's sort of happily, um, you know, able to Barney with them or go off and listen. He joins the Art Society. He puts on um, a student review because that's something, that's part of the university life at that time. He, sub he becomes the sub-editor of Hermes, which he describes as the first literary magazine he'd ever come across in his life and just really relished, you know, the sorts of sentences the openings of some of those articles, the sentences they used. And then in a coup, in some ways, he becomes, first of all, sub-editor of Onisoir, which is like Ondi here, and then it's editor. Um, and, you know, there's more, too. He joins the History Society, and I came across some strange little memorandum which he writes, to, uh, giving the professor of history a hard time about, you know, <laughs> what he's saying in the history courses. So he's a real participant in university life yeah. to an extent that is very difficult today. Like, that sort of student life actually is not as pervasive. But it also meant that... I mean, it goes to your point, Karen, that that sense of... He, it's almost as though he had to do these things in order to understand how they work. Mm. And, you know, it helps... Uh, it, it's what he takes forward, I guess, in life also. You know, the editing... Oops, sorry. The editing of um, magazines, mm -hmm. journalism, um, and then let alone the artistic uh, creation, which... Well, it's, it's Nick's <laughs> point about liberal humanism, isn't it? It's a liberal humanist yeah. autodidact self-education. Yeah. He yeah. creates himself. He creates a mind. Um, we shall, um, we'll go to questions or observations in a moment, so if you'd like to share anything about the impact Donald Horne's had on your thinking or about the conversation today, the microphone is where it always is and we'll go to it shortly. But it would be remiss of me not to just ask uh, Karen in particular, but anybody on stage, to a certain extent, the education of young Donald belongs to a very male tradition of the way Australian write about themselves and we've already mentioned George Johnston and my brother Jack and the extent to which Australian men think about their youth and idolise, their idealise or idolise their childhood and their youthful selves but I was also just as we were coming on stage thinking about the boy Adiodatus and Bernard and Smith yep. or yep. A Fortunate Life and a more working class sense or yep. Watcher on the Cast Iron Balcony is the obvious one or more recently even Romulus My Father and from yep. a more migrant point of view we have these we have some masterworks of Australian writing in this genre, but women of the same generation write about themselves in a different way. Is that a fair observation? I don't know about write about themselves. I'd have to think about that some more, but I was just, while you were speaking, I was trying to think of, you know, well-known Australian autobiographies by women, and I couldn't come up with that many, but one interesting one in the context of what we've just been talking about, and like my brother Jack, this is a heavily autobiographical novel rather than... And that's um, Henry Handel Richardson's The Getting of Wisdom. Oh, great book. You know, which is, again, The Getting of Wisdom. There's the title. This yeah. is about how I learned. 
Or my right. brilliant career. Or, well, <laughs> indeed, or my brilliant career. Um, also a heavily autobiographical. Um, but there's Barbara... Ha what all these women have in common is that they had no children. Barbara Hanrahan, the beautiful, beautiful um, autobiographical books about set in Adelaide in the, that she wrote in the 1970s. Um, Sally Morgan's My Place, mm. which is you know, specifically about growing up as an Aboriginal, young Aboriginal woman. Um, I had a couple or, or of even something raffish them. like Aunts Up the Cross by Robin Dalton. Well, you know, quite, yes. Again, yeah. sort of you have to almost transcend your sort of socially ordained role in order to have the um, pers perspective. Yeah. Or you've got to have it, well, Jermaine Greer, Daddy, we hardly knew you, you know, which is about her daddy. You know, it isn't even, even Jermaine couldn't quite manage to write a book that was just about herself and yeah. how she became Jermaine Greer. I, I guess the question I'm sort of trying to end on here is to what extent is it a male book? Is it a man's book? Like, is, to what extent are we, should we read it through that prism? Do you have an opinion? Well, I think it's a book for everyone. I mean... Of course, every reader. <laughs> but you can, make, you, can, you can still learn to get to know the writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, uh, just listening to what Karen was saying, you know, part of... Perhaps it was also a case that the publishing industry is, was back then more likely to publish um, books of... Uh, you know, autobiographies of men than of women. I mean, I think in the 20s and 30s there's a little renaissance, isn't yes. there, of, of women... Good women writers. Yeah. I yeah. will say this, though. I mean, I, I can't help reading writing by men at least partly through, you know, a feminist prism. And, you know, the number of times you'll be reading something a man writes and think he's just a sexist porker. The really interesting thing about this, even, you know, the first volume, which was published in 1964, there's this... Repetition. My best, my best friend when I was a kid was a girl. You know, I wanted to talk to the girls. They were more interesting. Yeah, um, you know, it, it's and it's not. He's not paying lip service because it's 1964. He doesn't have to, but he does. And there's respect for women and interest in women as human beings running all the way through the story of his. I didn't once think, oh, you know, the way I so often do. Um, well, and he was so often the champion of Judith Wright and was the one who would bring up the name Christina Stead in meetings and just remind us that certain, you know, that there is a, a different tradition at work and that we, uh, someone even. In a uh, but the Barnard Eldershaw yes. combination, yes. you know, was kept Catherine alive by yeah. the work of people like Donald Horn. That's right. Um, I'm aware we've got some questions. Please, sir, thank you. Donald famously said that this was a wonderful country held back by second-rate leaders who were largely unaware of events around them and so taken by surprise. If we were alive today, do you think he would be that generous about the current generation of leaders? I think you make a very good point, sir, and I think that, um, I think, you know, the question of leadership really, really exercised his mind and it would, I hate saying what people would do, you know, when they're dead, but I think it would be exercising his mind even in his grave now. Yeah, yeah but also, you also have to say that um, you've got to play the cards you dealt, you know. Maybe we don't want to be here, but this is where we are, and he, he was always aware that that um, things are always going to go wrong. So he wouldn't have thrown you know, his, his hands up and, and said, that, you know, too hard or whatever. He would have, he would have been in there swinging. Yeah. But, um, there's, al there's also a sense that there's not just leadership at Canberra or political leadership. We also need moral and cultural leadership, don't we? And I suppose implicit in the question is not just about our current crop of politicians, but where's today's Donald Horn uh, in any field? So he hasn't replicated himself either, or we haven't found that man or woman. Uh, please. So listening to you, I've realised my father was born in the same year as Donald Horn, 
so I've, I've got some sort of family curiosity. So how old was he when he had children? And Nick, why do you drive taxis? <laughs> so how old was he when he had children? So he was uh, uh, married in 60 at the age of um, 38. And then Julia was a welcome addition a year later, so 39. And why do I drive taxis? Well, gee, that's a long one. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big one to, to talk about here. Uh, I suppose the, the answer is I enjoy it. Um, it's a useful, useful kind of job. Um, so that's a, that's a, that's a, I suppose. An, I haven't talked a bit, um, to Donald about it recently, so I can't, I can't, uh, I can't add to that. Uh, and we, sh well, we should bear, bear testament to just what's happened to the taxi industry as a large part of our life. I'm, am, I'm amazed at any, calling yourself a taxi driver to a certain extent is like calling you. you it's, a historic term. it's a historic term now, <laughs> isn't it? The age of Uber yeah, and yeah, yeah. so on. So it's a, there's, a, there's a nobility to it, shall we say? Please. Um, just to add another female writer to your list, Tracy Sorensen, who I know you both have established a communication with, she's a dear friend of mine. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wonder if you could just comment on Donald's influence on her writing, because I know you probably know a lot about that. Uh, would you like, uh, you comment on the influence on Tracy's writing, then I'd like to say a couple of other things. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think The Lucky Country was an important um, book for Tracy. Uh, and as a piece, as a work of literature as well, I think, because Tracy's got a good eye um, for a good phrase as well, so, so she, she sort of uh, was really able to appreciate the, the literary quality of the work. So um, that, that, was, you know, that was why she wrote her book, The, the Lucky Galab, so, um, which is also a terrific book. And, and Tracy also uh, read The Education of Young Donald, and of course, coming from a country... Um, small country town, even smaller than, than Musselbrook and much more isolated in, in Carnarvon there in Western Australia. The education um, of young Donald also resonated for him. Yeah. It's a fascinating illustration of the afterlife of a major work, isn't it, as that works start yeah. to reverberate yeah. and are imitated and become a template again for something new and fresh. Yeah. I mean, all, what I would add there is that I'm really... You know, the lucky country's still in print. In fact, it's for sale over there, I notice. But I, it does always... You know, I'm quite surprised about how young people still pick it up and read it and some of those then um, seek permission for you know to use an, a paragraph here there or wherever from the lucky country in um, their books unfortunately I can't remember the most recent um, women who've done that uh, but it's just yes it, it, it resonates across the generations. So again, I don't know whether they're seeing it on their parents' bookshelves or they're coming across and it's this title and they then read and, you know, they want to incorporate it somehow. Well, as, as the very parent cute. of millennial children, like intelligent millennial children, I can assure you they hate being told how lucky they are <laughs> <laughs> um, because they, they don't see themselves necessarily as a generation that's the recipient of whatever the, the luck yeah, is. So there might be some irony at, yeah. at work going on there. Um, in the absence of a final question, I might just uh, make one, ask for one final set of observations. One of the planks of Donald's public life towards the end there was republicanism. He didn't start out life as an Australian Republican, but he certainly became a key figure in whatever the Republican movement was. At the moment, it feels like it's in abeyance and has run out of steam. 
Uh, let's just talk a little bit about that. How did he arrive at a Republican position, Nick? Where did he, how did he come to that? Because he was one of the first to start talking about it seriously. Yeah, well, so sort of Republicanism has a, a proud history in Australia. Um, in the 1890s, you know, there was a, the, the radical um, nationalism. Um, and Donald it was also sort of um, very rural and, and, and sexist. And, and Donald, that didn't speak to Donald much, but... Then Jeff Dutton um, wrote, Jeff Dutton, great Adelaide um, son, he, he wrote, he wrote um, a book, a, a, an article about, about republicanism, and Donald thought, hey, yeah, that's a good idea, that makes sense. And, and um, because Donald, I mean, the 60s was different, you know, we, we, we were, I mean, in a sense, there's a lot of improvement in Australia since, the, since you wrote The Lucky Country. There's, we've got to remember that there's some, we've come a long way. And now republicanism um, really doesn't so much just rest on sort of you know, national self-identity because those arguments have already won. Republicanism sort of rests on the fact that having, having a queen or a, or a king um, born somewhere else is just so bloody stupid. Julia, do you have a perspective on <laughs> Well, of course, I mean, you know, if we see the lucky country part as part manifesto, republicanism plays a part in that book. So, you know, it's where his first in a book at least, talking about it. And I guess that again you know, goes back to 1964. It's 20 years after the war. There's a lot of talk about Australia becoming an independent nation, not necessarily completely separate from, um, from uh, the UK in the sense that, yes, we still have a head of state, but there's a lot of talk about that. Uh, you know, there's this, how do we live with Asia, which was the article that um, Penguin then approached him with to write the lucky country. So I think it's that his picking up, I mean, his picking up, his writing about it, and um, it's that basis, I think. It's a post-war phenomenon. It's, you know, it doesn't date back to the 1890s where... The bulletin you know, school. Yeah, sort yeah of, it's yeah. not the bulletin school. Yeah. It's th this notion of um, how do we achieve our independence because that's what we're going to need to be a modern, operational Australia. And he was... In, in step, it, everything has to happen simultaneously. The multicultural agenda was at the yes. same time as the Republican agenda. They're not an opposition or one thing first, then the other. Um, that kind of good old-fashioned small-l liberal that we have to move progress simultaneously. It was uh, so sophisticated when you read it. Um, we should just ask about this particular edition that we're holding up in our hands here. <laughs> you are <laughs> present, aren't you, in it in your own way? Is, is there, in the sense of that the, the, this came about as a result of your work and, and your introductions and so on? So, uh, well, we were asked by the publisher to write an introduction to it. It, it came out partly because uh, when our mother died in 2013, um, you know, we suddenly became, I guess, the inheritors of this literary legacy. And there is a sense in which the, you know, the works are very vital and mean a lot still to today, not just, not just this volume, but, you know, many of them. And, um, but this one has a, it, it's sort of a classic of Australian whatever, you know, it's, it's in its autobiographical tradition along, so, you know, you can, even if Donald wasn't who he was, you can read this book and really, I think, um, it can resonate with you. So it was part, yes, it was, we thought this book should be reissued and 
fortunately, New South also thought it should be reissued. Well, and and it's wonderful to have your introduction in there too. Yeah, it just emphasises the conversation through time aspect. And so I would exhort you, if you haven't got a copy of this new edition of The Education of Young Donald, feel free, by all means, at the tent to acquire one. And the children of Donald Horn will be available to sign it, which will be something unusual. You can get the children <laughs> of the author to sign your valuable copy of The Education of Young Donald. I'm sure you'll agree this has been a stimulating conversation it's always a joy to bear witness to the great minds that have formed our nation and to uh, remember and to reflect. It's not always just people flogging their books. There's something profound at work as well. Uh, could you join me in thanking for their time? Julia Horn, Nick Horn, Karen Goldsworthy, thank you for being here. As I say, feel free to jo uh, join us for further conversation. We'll see you next time.